Hey everybody, welcome to the 5 by your five-stop shop for quick-fire board game reviews. On this episode, John takes us through the solo game of Teotihuacan, Sarah plans the perfect town in suburbia, I try to escape the pull of a black hole in Gravwell, and Meeple Lady beefs up her defense against those good-for-nothing heroes in Dungeon Lords. But first, Ruth designs a world-famous flower garden in Sanssouci. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, talking about a game set amongst the terrace gardens of Sanssouci, the summer palace of Frederick the Great, King of Prussia. Located in Potsdam near Berlin, this was a place where the ruler could escape the pomp of the royal court, and as its name suggests, be without cares. The game of the same name puts two to four players in the role of gardeners, creating the beautiful palace grounds through which nobles wander. Designed by Michael Kiesling of Azul fame, San Suci was published in 2013 by Ravensburger. Featuring the illustrations of Harold Liesk and Julian Delval, this towel-line game is an extremely enjoyable way to spend 30 to 45 care free minutes. To set up the game, each player receives a garden board and a personal deck of cards. On their turns, they'll use a card to claim a garden feature tile, placing the tile in its corresponding place in the garden before moving a noble figure along the paths they've connected in order to score points. Play continues this way until each player has played all 18 of their cards, and at this point players score endgame cards along with completed rows and columns on their boards to declare a winner. The roles are simple enough, making Sans Sushi a pretty easy teach, but it's the details of each step that make the game interesting, and that force players to think about how to most efficiently use their turns. The game's tiles each show one of nine different garden feature types. Two tiles are randomly placed on each of five different colored areas of the central board. Each player has a hand of two cards to choose from, each showing either a feature type or two colors. If they play a feature card, then they can take a tile showing that feature from any area. If they play a card showing colors, they choose one tile from one of the matching areas. There's also a wild card in each deck that lets a player pick any tile that's available, and if someone plays a feature card of a type not currently on the display, then that card is also considered to be a wild card. Feature cards being able to turn wild makes for some interesting turns, as players try to most efficiently use these cards in order to get the tiles they want from the limited selection, especially since where a tile comes from affects where it can be placed on the player's garden board. You see, each garden board's columns show a particular feature. The first is only statues, while the six is all fountains, and so on. The rows on the board correspond to the five colored areas. When a player takes a tile, it must go into the row and column corresponding to its type and the color of the area it was chosen from. If that spot's been filled already, the tile is flipped over to become a gardener who can be placed in either the row or column that matches the original spot. Gardener tiles can't be used to score during the game, so they're less desirable than the garden features. But since they also complete paths and count towards the completion of a row or column at endgame, they can still be extremely helpful when used smartly. Every tile placed on the board does add to the paths through the garden, and the paths are how players score the majority of their points. At the top of each board at the beginning are nine nobles who wish to simply move down through the terrace but stop only in their own column. They can move side to side as much as is needed, however, to get around gaps. At the end of each player turn, one noble can head off a long pass to reach a point lower in their own column. The player then scores points corresponding to the row they've reached. Nobles don't stop on gardener tiles. They only want to admire the garden features. So players need to make sure there's a valid scoring location for the noble they plan to move. Each player is also dealt two random cards at the start of the game that show particular features. At game end, they'll get to score again for the space that features noble managed to reach. So getting the right nobles to your terrace's 
lower steps can be pretty lucrative. Sansu Chi also comes with an expansion in the box. This is an extra board placed on top of the lower section of your garden. As a result, many of the spaces now feature bonus points for placing their feature, bonus points for covering them with a gardener instead of a feature, or even negative points for putting anything on the space at all. This adds another consideration when choosing a tile, along with more ways to score points, but it doesn't change the game into something dramatically different. I like playing Sansu Chi both ways, and I appreciate having the expansion provided from the beginning. I also really like the tension that comes from placing a tile to continue paths, but doing so requires placing it on a negative space. As I've said before, I love games that let me create something, and Sansu Chi is definitely one of those games. Round after round, your garden board gets filled with color. Liska has filled the tiles with lush green grass and charming garden decorations, and as your garden grows, it becomes a thing of beauty. Sansuchi is a relaxing and enjoyable game to play, but the decisions within are still interesting enough that it provides those satisfying moments, such as when you grab the perfect tile, or when you use a gardener to connect a great scoring opportunity, managing to turn a less than stellar tile option into a fantastic thing for your score. Once you know how to play the game, a session takes 30 minutes at most, and so this is a game you can even set up again for a rematch when your partner beats you by just a point. I didn't hear much about this game back in 2013 when it was first released, but I'm glad that I discovered it some years later, as it's become a staple for our after-dinner gaming. Please check it out if you're a fan of puzzly tile-laying games, as it definitely scratches that itch. And feel free to let me know what you think if you manage to find an opportunity to play. You can find me on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. It's a little strange to call a game that's just eight years old a classic, but Suburbia is very much a classic. Designed by Ted Alspaugh and published in 2012 by Bezier Games, Suburbia has players competing to build the best suburb with the highest population. You do this by buying and placing hexagonal tiles that represent parks, apartment buildings, office complexes, and so forth to create a little suburban town. Suburbia was already covered on the 5 by by Lindsay way back in episode 13, so I won't go into too much detail about specific rules. But check out Lindsay's excellent review for more. If you asked me what would make a fun theme for a game, Suburban Life probably wouldn't be at the top of my list. Or in the middle, or actually anywhere on the list. And yet, Suburbia is a really fun game. The tiles interact in such interesting ways, and each tile you play steers you towards or away from various paths going forward. It leads to interesting decisions on every turn, and it's also very fun to watch your little town develop in sometimes strange ways, as you place tiles to maximize scoring, with maybe no thought for what it means to have, say, an elementary school next door to a slaughterhouse, which is next door to a fine restaurant. I will say that Suburbia's strength, the wide variety of interactions among tiles, can also be a weakness, as scoring each tile can be fiddly. First, you score the new tile, which may be based on adjacent tiles or all the tiles of some type in your town or throughout the game. Then check all the other tiles in your town to see if they have a scoring benefit, and all other players do the same. And then, on everyone else's turn, you have to check and see if any tiles they placed affect any of your tiles. It's a little fiddly. Now, in a typical game, you'll probably only have a couple of tiles that you have to check constantly, so it's not that much to keep track of. But I don't know that I've ever played an in-person game of Suburbia where no one missed anything. If keeping track of scoring seems like a hassle, because it kind of is, you might want to try the app. Suburbia has a great app on iOS and Android. 
The implementation is smooth and the app shows you exactly what the result of each tile will be, making it much easier to work out each turn. You can play against AI opponents or pass and play with human players. Unfortunately, online multiplayer has been removed from the app due to a bug and is probably not coming back. There is, however, a solo campaign that has you traveling around the country meeting various challenges. Suburbia the Physical Game has two solo variants, The Lone Architect, where you play to beat your own high score, and Dale the Bot, where you play against an automaton. I find Dale more challenging, although having to place Dale's tiles is tedious, you're basically doing twice as much of the fiddly part. The Lone Architect, with no automaton, is good for familiarizing yourself with the game, but doesn't have a lot of replay value for me. But if you really want to play a lot of Solo Suburbia, you might want to go with the app since all the setup and scoring is done for you. There was a collector's edition on Kickstarter in 2019, which shipped to backers about six months ago. I backed it, and it's really nice. Came with all the expansions, gorgeous new tile art, metal coins, the player boards have real cities on them. Many component upgrades are not just cosmetic, but improve the game in substantial ways. The player boards now have notches for your income and reputation markers, which is wonderful. It used to be so easy to knock them out of place. And the best improvement is the redesigned score tracker, which is vastly easier to read. But with all the expansions and upgrades and bells and whistles, the Suburbia Collector's Edition is just a bit much. The box is enormous, easily the size of two regular big box games. It includes everything, all past expansions and promo tiles, a new expansion, new promo tiles, new components, and snazzy game trays to get all that stuff in the box. But having so much content creates a problem I wasn't expecting. There's all these extra tiles to contend with. And I find that adding a bunch of content to Suburbia doesn't improve the game. Because you aren't really adding tiles, you're replacing them. The total number stays the same. And so many tiles depend on what else is in play that diluting the pool, so to speak, can really mess with your strategy. For instance, I love going for airports, but they aren't worth it if there might only be one airport in the game. Mixing in too much expansion content can easily imbalance Suburbia. If you decide to bypass all that expansion and promo content and just play good old base game Suburbia, which is what I have done the past couple of plays, well, the base game components are in the bottom tray, and just getting everything in and out of that box is kind of an undertaking. That may sound like a trivial concern, but it adds to the time and effort it takes to play the game. The Suburbia Collector's Edition is still for sale on the Bezier website, and I'm not saying not to buy it, I'm just saying it's a lot. Get the Collector's Edition if you would get all the expansions anyway, or if you love the new tile art, which, let's be honest, it's a big improvement, or if you just can't stand not having everything that's available. No judgment here, I totally get that impulse. If that's the case, then you should get the Collector's Edition. But if you don't care so much about being a completist and you just want to play Suburbia, and especially if storage space is in short supply, then get the regular edition. Now is a pretty good time to buy it since a lot of people who backed the collector's edition on Kickstarter are trying to sell or trade their copy of the original. And that's Suburbia, a city-building tile-laying game that's a classic for a reason. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Imagine you're the boss and you've amassed a hardworking crew to build infrastructure and uncover treasure in your domain. You work hard burrowing through granite for tunnels, providing adequate safety measures for your rooms, and making sure your workers are supervised and fed. Now imagine if one day you're minding your own business and some, quote, do-gooders enter your realm and start mucking everything up. It's the absolute worst. Welcome to Dungeon Lords. 
where those pesky adventurers ruin everything, and so-called bad guys just want to be left alone to build their underground dungeons. Published in 2009 by Czech Games Editions, Dungeon Lord is designed by Vlad Shavadil with artwork by David Kochard. I describe the game as cute, colorful, and punishing. It's a worker placement that includes elements of hand management and pre-programming orders, which execute in a unique and possibly brutal way. And oh, there's an evilometer, which measures just how bad your reputation is to the outside world. Going up the evilometer is bad, but sometimes a necessary evil. But watch out, if you're too evil, the paladin, the strongest of all the adventurers, will be banging on your dungeon door. The game is played out over two identical years, with each year starting in winter. Through each season, players are mainly pre-programming their order cards and executing, and the main board is refilled. At the end of spring, summer, and fall, event cards come into play. Each player has the same set of order cards, as well as their player board, which represents their dungeon. There's also a main board for all the players that make up the various order locations where your minions will be placed. At the start of each season, players select three order cards from their hands and place them face down on their player boards on slots 1, 2, and 3, the order they want their cards to be executed. From the get-go, there are tough decisions to be made because the card you place in the second and third slot will become inaccessible for just the next round. The game actually sets up inaccessible cards for each player at the very start of the game so that everyone's hand of available orders will be different. Once everyone is done programming their order cards, they all get flipped over, and in turn order, each player places their minions on the matching location that's shown on the first card, and then everyone places their second minion on what's shown on the second card, and so forth. Once all the minions are placed on the order spaces, the locations will resolve in order. But just because you were the first minion to arrive at the location doesn't necessarily mean that you'll reap the most beneficial reward. Some locations benefit the person who arrived there last, while punishing the person who arrived there first with nothing. And this is one of the best parts that I love about this game. It adds the crucial element of timing to an otherwise standard worker placement mechanism. So what do the order locations do? You can get food, improve your reputation, dig tunnels, mine for gold, recruit imps, buy traps, hire monsters, or build rooms. All of these actions are for the benefit of your dungeon and may help protect against those annoying adventurers. At each location, three slots are marked in the order where minions can be placed, but each space shows which minion goes first at the end of the round. The smallest slot goes first, and again, that isn't always the minion who arrived there first. Monsters and traps, for a cost, help you combat adventures, while tunneling deeper into your dungeon enables you to build rooms which provide benefits and endgame VPs. It's advantageous to build a lot of rooms because more than likely they will become conquered by those meddling adventurers. Gameplay repeats itself for each season. New monsters and rooms come out for purchase as well as another set of adventurers. At the end of the season, the adventurers that are all out from weakest to strongest will line up at each dungeon lord's entrance, with the weakest going to the lowest player on the evilometer. At the end of the year, the combat phase occurs. Four combat rounds happen, and each player must fight the line of adventurers who are coming into their dungeon. You can place one monster and one trap in each tunnel, and two monsters and one trap in each room. One by one, you inflict damage onto the adventurer at the start of the line, and if you kill them, they go into your prison for VPs at the end. If an adventurer is still alive, they continue conquering deeper into your dungeon until all the combat rounds are finished. 
This part can be particularly brutal as all your hard work becomes obliterated. Gameplay then repeats for another year, and then the final scoring occurs to receive VPs for various majorities, such as the highest on the evilometer, the one who has the most rooms, and so forth. If you scored any points after this, you're a dungeon lord. Congrats! If you have the most points, you're also the winner. Dungeon Lords is best played at 4 players, though it does come with rules for playing non-player boards at 2 and 3 players, whose pieces will block you on the board. But the experience isn't as dynamic, in my opinion. There's a lot going on, especially during the combat rounds, but luckily the board's artwork and iconography are clear and gleefully cheerful. Look at all those cute little imps on the box cover. It also has a fun first player rule, the nicest player goes first. My buddy used to tell me, well that rules you out. I have absolutely no idea what he's talking about. And that's Dungeon Lords! This is Meeple Lady for the 5i. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening! Bye! The term gateway game seems to mean a lot of things to a lot of people. It can be a bit of a touchy subject among hobby board gamers, not only because the term gets regularly misconstrued, but because its definition inhabits a gray area the size of a small country. What constitutes a gateway game is a perpetual, rolling debate. As gamers get deeper into the hobby, their perception of what can act as a gateway game seems to get dragged along behind them, creeping up in complexity as their own comfort with familiar mechanisms grows. I'm absolutely not immune to this. Even three decades into this hobby, I still have a tendency to underestimate the complexity of games across the spectrum. I recently pulled Coimbra off the shelf, under the audacious notion I could teach it and play it with three new, albeit experienced, players in under 90 minutes. I once introduced Carcassonne to two players who'd never played it, with a seven-player, multiple base set and expansion-laden monstrosity that lasted over three hours. At least two of the people in that game will never play Carcassonne again. I've scared off my fair share of newbies in the past as well, the most poignant of which was my attempt to introduce a non-gaming friend to the hobby via Five Tribes. Sorry, Brian. Finding games that are interesting enough to hold the attention of experienced hobby board gamers while remaining feasible as introductory games for non-gamers is no small feat, and Corey Young's Gravwell pulls it off beautifully. The premise is simple. Players' ships start at the center of the board in the singularity. The board consists of nothing but a 55-space spiral track with a warp gate at its outer end. Each turn, players play cards that allow their ships to move a certain number of spaces in a certain direction, and the first player to reach the warp gate wins. The game I just described sounds, not to put too fine a point on it, bad. And if that's all Gravwell was, I wouldn't be talking to you about it now. Of course there's a catch. When you play a standard movement card, your ship doesn't just move forward that number of spaces but instead it moves toward the closest ship. At the beginning of the game, the board is seated with two derelict ships so everyone can get out of the center, but after that, a kind of quiet chaos ensues. At the beginning of each round, the movement cards are laid out in 12 piles of two cards each, one face up and one face down. Players begin each round by drafting from those piles, so you have some minimal control over half your hand while leaving the other half completely unknown. Each turn, everyone selects and plays their movement cards simultaneously. Each card contains the name of an element, and those cards are then resolved in alphabetical order. So, you might have a card that moves you seven spaces, but when the opponent controlling the ship two spaces in front of you goes first and rockets away, leaving the closest ship behind yours, well, yeah, you're screwed. To complicate matters, there are three types of movement cards. Standard cards, like I said, simply move you toward whatever ship is closest. 
Repulsor cards push you away from the closest ship, handy when you're in the lead. My favorite are the tractor beam cards, which pull every other ship on the board toward yours. This all may sound a little random, especially with the unknown of drafting face-down cards, but there is one mitigating factor. Everyone has an emergency stop card. After cards are flipped and initiative is determined, once it gets to your turn, you can play your emergency stop to negate your movement card. That one element tips the game from frustrating to phenomenal. The beauty of Gravwell's strategy is trying to balance where you'll go in turn order while trying to divine what the board will look like when it gets to you. Maybe you know that ship in front of you is planning to repulse her away, so you need to play early in the turn so you're not flying backward. Or maybe with the closest ship behind you, you need to play late to give them a chance to pass by. Or sometimes maybe you just want to tractor beam everybody into your orbit just to mess them up a little. Some people just want to see the world burn. Every round is a beautiful symphony in two stages. First, in trying for a beneficial draft, and second, in trying to bounce between other ships in a frantic attempt not to get pulled into a black hole. When one player reaches a warp gate, they win. Alternately, the game will run for six rounds, and whoever's furthest along the spiral wins. In either case, the game typically lasts about 20 to 25 minutes. In all my plays, it has always felt the perfect Goldilocks combination of strategy, complexity, and playtime. Weirdly, Gravoil seems to be unavailable from the major online game stores at the time of this recording, but you can get it directly from the publisher Renegade Games for 35 bucks. Alternately, it's perpetually available on Amazon for about $25. Used copies pop up on BGG and elsewhere for as low as 15 bucks, which is a steal. I genuinely love Gravwell. It's beautiful without being cluttered, simple without being easy, and engaging without being too complex. My game group loves tabling it as a filler, and I've never had a problem introducing Gravwell to my non-gamer friends, making it the one game that consistently defies my ingrained complexity bias. If, like me, you have trouble figuring out what games other than Ticket to Ride you can use to ease your friends into board gaming, or just want a great filler for your experienced group, you can't go wrong here. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! Hi, I'm John Gonzalez, and today I'll be taking a look at the solo mode for Teotihuacan City of Gods, one of my favorite games from 2018. Teotihuacan was designed by Daniel Toshini and published by Boards and Dice. David Tertzi, the designer of Anachrony and Dice Settlers, among other games, designed the solo mode for Teotihuacan. Previously, Teotihuacan City of Gods was covered by Meeple Lady in episode 60 of The Five By. Check out her review for a detailed look at the game. In Teotihuacan, players lead noble families to victory by contributing to the construction of the Pyramid of the Sun. Players take turns moving their dice workers clockwise around the board, taking actions and collecting resources. The more dice you have on an action board, the better the yield. Once your worker has performed the main action on an action board, it levels up and you note its progress by adjusting the pip value on the die itself. Having stronger workers yields better results. When a worker reaches level 6, it ascends. You move up your token on the Avenue of the Dead track. The die then returns to the first action space on the board and you gain one of five bonuses. Resources are mainly used to build or decorate the pyramid by using the decorations and construction action boards. The wooden tiles that make up the pyramid are glossy and chunky and once the pyramid is built, there is an undeniable table presence that often compels passersby to stop and take a look. Placing tiles on the pyramid has a satisfying puzzle-like quality. Matching up any of the four icons from the tile you are placing to the tile underneath scores you a victory point for each match. And if the tile you're placing has an icon that is red, green, or blue, and you match it to the icon underneath, you also go up one step on the temple track of the same color. 
If you're a fan of tracks in your board games, then Totiwakan City of Gods has you covered. Finding ways to capitalize on taking actions and moving up the tracks is a very satisfying puzzle in of itself. It's this interlocking system of actions, mechanisms, tracks, and resources that keeps me coming back to it. When first playing the game, you have to be mindful that you aren't skipping any of the game's numerous steps and procedures. Collecting gold at the gold deposit, for example, requires that you pay Coco, collect the gold, power up your worker or workers. If while powering up your worker ascends, then you're going to have to walk through the ascension process and complete four additional steps, one of which involves choosing from five different rewards. It's a lot to keep track of, and the game doesn't include any player aids to help you keep track of all the minutia. So, how does the solo version for Teotihuacan work? Well, I'll try to convey it in the time remaining. Game setup for the solo mode in Teotihuacan is similar to the two-player version. Placeholder die workers are set up around the board, and like in other worker placement games, they're there to make your life a bit more difficult. Just like in the multiplayer game, performing the main action on any of the seven action boards requires a cocoa payment, one cocoa for each player that's on the action space including yourself. Having these placeholder workers sitting on action boards increases the cost of performing actions. Sure, these placeholder workers move at the end of the three rounds in the game, but that means that you'll have non-player workers dice just hanging out on spaces you're trying to access for a bunch of turns. Your opponent in the solo mode, on the other hand, likes to move. Enter. Teltibot, Teltiwakan's AI opponent. Teltibot is controlled by a set of seven tiles, six of which are cleverly arranged in a pyramid pattern. Three at the bottom, two at the middle, and one at the top. At the start of the game, the tiles are arranged at random, and the seventh tile is placed to the side. On Teltibot's turn, you roll two dice, and the result tells you which one of the seven tiles is activated. You carry out the action, and then refer to a set of two other tiles that tell you which one of Teltibot's action pyramid tiles moves up to fill the newly vacant space. The empty spot at the bottom of the pyramid is then filled with the tile that was set aside. It's a bit difficult to describe, but Teltibot's action pyramid in action is a pretty effective method for guiding your AI opponent's turns. Carrying out the actions, however, involves several other steps. And just to give a brief example, Teltibot's actions relating to constructing the pyramid involves checking to see if Teltibot has the required resources, carrying out the action itself, marking the points earned, and advancing the token on the pyramid track. Then you have to move Teltibot's token up on one of the three temple tracks, gaining resources along the way. Finally, Teltibot's worker powers up, possibly triggering its ascension. If it does ascend, you move Teltibot's token up on the avenue of the dead track. I'm honestly getting a bit when they're just talking about all the steps involved. Sure, Teltibot's action pyramid provides some automation and randomness to how the AI opponent works, but you're still very much responsible for carrying out those actions. It's a sometimes taxing endeavor in an already complex game with a litany of procedures and steps. But what saves the solo mode in Teotihuacan City of Gods is that in its complexity, it manages to offer an AI opponent that stays competitive. Teotibot builds the pyramid, it moves around the board, taking up spaces and raising the cocoa costs of actions, it races up the temple tracks toward end-of-game bonuses. In short, Teotibot does a pretty decent job at simulating an opponent. If you already have it on your shelf and you're looking for a solid and challenging solo experience, give it a spin. Just make sure you have a couple hours set aside. For the 5 by, I'm John Gonzalez. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The 5 by your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website at 5 
If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash games. From all of us at the Five By, thanks for listening. The Five By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.